0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. As an editor and as a writer, one of my kind of like notorious comments that people make fun of me for sometimes is just like the amount of times I'll just say like, okay, well, where's the context for this? Or like, what's the context for this? You know, and I am really glad that as an industry, we're still continuing to prioritize context over just content for the sake of content.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Jesse Sparks. Do you know Jesse Sparks? Do you love Jesse Sparks? I certainly love Jesse Sparks and getting to know him during this conversation. Jesse is a senior editor at Eater and the host of a really great new podcast, The One Recipe. We talk about his life growing up in Houston and how his college days in Chicago molded him as both a writer and an eater. We also talk about his weekend baking projects and what excites him about food and restaurants today. This is such a fun conversation with Jesse Sparks. I hope you enjoy it as well. Jesse Sparks, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's wonderful. I've followed your career, and I, I love you're the, you're the enterprise editor at Eater now, and, and we're recording this on the day of the James Beard Award nominations, and congratulations to you and Eater. So many nominations. Amazing.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I really can't take too much credit. There's so much great
1: work <laughs> happening, um, but it, it's a joy to be able to be on a team that's so excited about what they do. Right on, and you are you are the enterprise editor, so you are enterprising. So there's definitely thank some you for that. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you first about growing up in Houston because I've had the pleasure of visiting Houston several times for work. Um, uh, for my book Koreatown, I, I visited there, but I also did some other projects there. And I have to say, it's one of America's most underrated and just wonderful food cities. So I'd like to hear about your your some of your favorite foods growing up in Houston, Texas. Oh my gosh. Where do I even start? So yeah, I 100% agree
0: with you. I think Houston is absolutely one of the country's most underrated food cities. Um, So yeah, I... It's actually a funny story. I was born in Ann Arbor. My family um, kind of moved around the Ann Arbor, Detroit area for a while, and then we moved down to Dallas and then finally settled in Houston for a little bit. Um, So... Ever since we, like, put down roots here, we were constantly just getting introduced to all these new different foods. So, like, it was the first time that we were going to, like, crawfish boils and we were going to, you know, big, big barbecues that were, like, much more uh, technical and much more in-depth than some of the barbecues that (laughs) we've been going to before. Um, So, ever since then, I just have always loved the different You know, treatments for brisket, all the different ways that you can, you know, treat or smoke all these different vegetables and all the thinking that goes into these meats. So it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. When you say technical, I love that word because you're talking about the way that the barbecue is being set up and the time that's going into it. Because I think you're tapping into a topic like Houston barbecue has its own barbecue culture. It's not Hill Country barbecue, right? It's a different style. Oh, absolutely.
0: And I think that kind of relationship. Um, really speaks so significantly to just a lot of the ways that people misunderstand Houston's food culture. Right? They they see things that are familiar, and then they are just like, "Oh, okay." I have a general bearing of like what this is going to be or what this city has to provide. But really, there are so many nuances. There are so many details. And then there are also so many people just putting together new ideas. Um, so it's yeah. it's a lot of fun. It's a great place to be.
1: It's a great place, and let's talk about the Viet Cajun or the Viet Vietnamese, I guess Cajun would be more New Orleans, but like the the Vietnamese community in in uh, in Houston. And so crawfish is one. How is that so unique to America? The way that Vietnamese food is being served in Houston, because I think some of our listeners may have never been to Houston. Well, you got to go there first I'll get some text mex too. Please like so. it is really. <laughs> 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 but also, let's. How is it done? Like how is Vietnamese food being served there? I I mean, I,
0: I think that's one of the beautiful things about this moment right now is that you're seeing Vietnamese food take so many forms. Um, so, like, for instance, Priya Krishna just wrote a piece for the New York Times about all of the different, like, banh mi um, drive throughs that are popping up across the city. And some of them are old and have been around for years. And then some of them are completely brand new that popped up during the pandemic. So you're seeing banh mi get a... a so exciting new life and then you're also seeing um some inspirations from like of course the hollowed <laughs> crawfish and noodles um mm-hmm. which is kind of like the viet cajun um it was it was one of the first really big restaurants in like recent memory that really took off um mm-hmm. you are seeing all of these different noodle preparations alongside like crawfish boils <laughs> and, and everything yeah. um, but then also there are places like Brothers Barbecue, where, you know, there are even more different experimentations for how to both incorporate, (laughs) I always struggle to say it out loud, but Mm Louisiana takes with um, Asian Mm -hmm. influences and barbecue. So there are just so many Mm -hmm. different iterations and there's so much to be excited about.
1: Absolutely. I I like um, the way that Priya wrote about the the, the to-go banh mi and how the banh mi is actually a a perfect food for the car, which I think was great. Have you been? Have you been to some of these establishments that are like the drive-through bonhomie stands?
0: Yeah. So I haven't. I haven't been to all of the ones that Priya wrote about, but I've been to a yeah. few. And have, I wouldn't expect that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me constantly driving around the city looking yeah. for parts, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is not far off from my free time. But we're not going to get into that yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But it, it it's just been so much fun to see businesses like this take. Because it's like, actually, yeah, Houston does have the car culture to really, you know, see businesses mm-hmm. like these take off. It has the culture of people who know good food and want better and better food experiences, even if they don't necessarily have the time to sit down to enjoy them, you know?
1: Yeah, right on. And let's talk, let's zoom out and talk about Texas cuisine because I think Texas as a state doesn't necessarily get the the credit it deserves. Um so, what are maybe some some myths or a myth, one myth about <laughs> Texas uh, and in food in Texas that we might need to bust right here on the Taste Podcast?
0: Okay, well, we're coming in hot. We're coming to you live. Coming in hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just think it's one of the most obvious, and yet it's still so fundamentally misguided. It's just that so many people assume that like cooks and chefs in Texas have no idea how to handle vegetables or like Mm -hmm. anything that's not a protein Um, when really there are so many exciting and really just beautiful preparations for you know vegetarian cuisine vegan cuisine and you know food that doesn't always have to center the protein right like I think so many people automatically assume it's going to be you know (laughs) hulking slabs of pork yeah steak and just a bunch of like bros slapping meat for hours <laughs> and it's like really <laughs> it, it can be like that at times, but but really there's so much more depth there that mm-hmm. I'm really excited for more people to see.
1: Yeah, wonderful city. Uh we could talk about it all day, but let's move north <laughs> a little bit to where you went to college, Northwestern. I'm a I'm a badger myself, so I guess oh. we're rivals in sports. <laughs> okay. Well listen,
0: anyone from the Midwest is always gonna be a friend to me. <laughs> Oh, like that's so kind.
1: <laughs> I grew up in Michigan as well, so I, I we're, we're we're Midwesterners. I love it. Oh yeah, through and through, <laughs> <laughs> through and through. Well, well, tell me about Chicago because going to school there, um, you uh, you know, you you participate in journalism there, and you got to you definitely were out and about on the scene. So I just I wanted to get your take on like Chicago as a food city. Uh, we just had um, Steve Dolinsky on the show, uh, and t- oh, wow. he was talking about his hometown. Uh, but what's your point of view? What's Chicago like? I I loved Chicago as a food city. I think
0: there are just so many opportunities for really, really fun ways to draw on history um, that the city is kind of like m- has been molding and is always incorporating and is like also very self-aware of. Um, so it's it's just such a fun place to be able to explore it both <laughs> – and I and I mean this wholeheartedly, like, both <laughs> in the summer when you're already gassed up by, you know, like, that little bit of vitamin D and, like, everyone's <laughs> in a great mood. So you're like, oh, of course the food's going to be great. But you always know that it's a really good food city when you're even willing to go out in the middle of the winter just to have, like, a meal somewhere else. Um, so, yeah. so that was where I was introduced to restaurants like Parachute and saw chefs like Beverly Kim advocating for um, – Maternal and paternal leave in the restaurant industry. That's where I saw so many people really getting into um, that, like another iteration of the serious cocktail movement, capital S C
1: M. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. where it was kind of like you know, with Violet Hour, it's kind oh, of one yeah. of the one of the the cities that it's considered a birthplace outside of New York of the quote unquote serious capital S cocktail <laughs> movement, capital C. Re- respect that, <laughs>
0: right? I think we should make some merch. I think we're onto something here, you know. I think just, we're onto something Just inter- rolls off yeah, the tongue ID-ing.
1: too. <laughs> yeah, we're ideating here. <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah. oh man, but it, but exactly, yeah. That was one of the places where my friends and I first actually got like really into the more crafted, more curated, more intentional cocktails, and it it was just fun. So that was a great place to kind of nurture that love for it.
1: Did you start food writing your career in Chicago? Did you do some food writing? Um, so I. <laughs> It's always really funny. I didn't –
0: I was more a generalist um, while I was actually in Chicago, but I was always super interested in food. And I was always thinking like, oh, I would love to be able to do something like this one day. But it always kind of felt like it was like something that was for someone else, right? I think for so many people who don't know someone already in food media or haven't been able to visualize – following a path like someone else's that they have already seen food media doesn't always feel like the most accessible thing um so it wasn't until i was (laughs) freelancing as a designer for the new york times saw half of like the design section get laid off and my mentor at the time was like please learn video do do something make sure that you're (laughs) staying up on your skills or something um and that was when i was just like you know what i'm gonna go to Eater. I'm going to learn as much as I can and I'm going to see if I can carve out a place for me. And that led to where I'm now.
1: <laughs> a wonderful career that's gone, you know, you've done a lot of different jobs and, and I feel like I'd like to talk about your writing though. Like what drives you to write about food? What, what, what drives you towards a, a, a great food story? Absol- what, what are some of the skills that you use? Ooh, f- great question. I
0: think for me it's so much more about both the curiosity into the actual like dish of the food, but also just like really the people at the center of it. You know, I think one of the things that so many people, and I'm sure you've heard this a ton on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm preaching to the choir right now. But I I just love the fact that so many food stories aren't just food stories. They're they're stories about people. They're stories about migration. They're stories about finding place and opportunity and agency. You know, there's stories about identity and figuring out where your place in the world is, and I think so many younger journalists or early career journalists really think of these massive stories that they want to tell—the the, the life shifting ones, the Pulitzer Prize winning ones—and mm. sometimes we forget that, you know, those impactful major stories aren't always the ones that are fifty thousand words long. When in reality, yeah. it's 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 the three hundred word blog post about a meal that you actually really loved that like maybe a mom and pop cafe is actually going to see and really appreciate. It's, you know, the reminders for people that their family recipes or their family, like food traditions still mean so much and are still valid and important. You know, so.
1: Well, well you, you say that we might, sp- you say, like we, you mentioned, we might speak about this often on the, on the show, but we actually don't enough because I think it's important to, and we talk about craft a bit on the show with our writers and editors, but it is important to point out, I agree with you fully, and it's what we do at Taste, which is, you know, we talk about home cooking and quick learning and we, we, we offer in- ingredients and recipes, but we also are always driven to the story behind the food that is a gateway into life and culture and uh, society and labor mm-hmm. and, and all, the, all the good things in life and some of the, the not so great things in life. And I'm glad you reminded, you reminded our listeners about this because it is important to keep in mind that we aren't Pinterest. We aren't a Pinterest board, right, in food media. Yeah. Pinterest is a great thing and it allows you to organize and cook recipes, but we, we aren't just like clipping recipes in food media. So thank you for that reminder. Listen,
0: the least I can do, (laughs) you know, I, I I feel like as an editor and as a writer, one of my (laughs) kind of like notorious comments that people make fun of me for sometimes is just like the amount of times I'll just say like, okay, well, where's the context for this? Or like, what's the context for this? You know, and I, I am really glad that, you know, or at, at least I'm hopeful that as an industry, we're still continuing to. Prioritize context over just content for the sake of content.
1: Agree fully. Um, <laughs> we we're just Anna and I were just talking about uh, burger rankings and working on a story. and Maybe it's out by now. And and like that's sometimes burger rankings um, can be content for content's sake. And and I think this actually the story drives into why it's a little more complicated. But yeah, absolutely. What? So I want to know about. Let's flip it though and actually talk <laughs> about cooking because we are we are interested, of course, in cooking. And I wanted to know like and your and your show uh is is revolv your podcast and your your radio show revolves around a single recipe, but I want to know like about recipes like what drives you to cook a recipe when you read it on the page or you read online or you see it on in Instagram what drives you to cook it oh my gosh um
0: so for me it's more just like something that just feels so exciting you know it's not always and i I say that with the Take it with a grain of salt. Bear with me a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Where it's more just like, what about this recipe really, really excites me, right? Like that can be, you know, a recipe that I've never done before or a technique I've never tried before. Like, uh, for instance, for the royal wedding between Harry and Meghan, um, (laughs) BA had developed the royal wedding cake. (laughs) And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to try to make this. And I had never made, like, a layer cake that big before. I was more just like a casual baker, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to set aside a weekend, and I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and I did it. But then once I was done, I was just like, oh, wait, I uh, don't have enough people in my apartment <laughs> to eat this Oh, thing. funny. <laughs> yeah. So it just lived in my uh, in my fridge for, like, two weeks, and, that, and then I had to just give it away to anyone who would take any.
1: One day you were just like – you cut the cord, and you are just like, I'm done with this cake. But that's, that's oh, a yeah. great example of a project <laughs> cooking – uh, I, too, am, do- am drawn to a recipe that um uh, you know, begs a question or it has some context to it. I, I think that's a, a great point. And I wanted to ask you about cookbooks because, you know, working at Eater MBA and BA mm-hmm. and Bon Appetit and, and, and other places, I feel like uh, you are around cookbooks a lot in your world. Um, so I wanted to get from you – if you have a couple favorite cookbooks, it doesn't have to be new books at all, just any keepers in your stack at home. Oh, absolutely.
0: Oh, okay. So I loved um, Tony Tipton Martin's Jubilee. Mm -hmm. I also loved Abra Barron's Roughage um, just because it's like a tome about all the different ways that you can cook with vegetables. Um, And I think that is just one of the things that at least a lot of, It may may not be the case anymore, which is a good thing. (laughs) But I think Mm -hmm. um, just like the average home cook doesn't always get enough support in terms of like really learning how to make vegetables sing and like how to navigate seasons and cook like seasonal cooking. Um, So it's just one that always feels kind of like a gesture or like a little challenge to just be like, okay, well – just flip to a random page, like find a vegetable that's in season and choose a recipe and learn how to cook it. And
1: yeah, it's a great way to. I, I love Abra's books. Um, I've I've interviewed her several times. Uh, and Ruffage and Grist are her two latest books. And I highly recommend doing your method because just like picking a page and and landing on it and cooking uh, eggplant or doing it, you know, t- cherry tomatoes or cucumbers. And then Tony Tipton Martin, I would like to have her on the Taste Podcast soon. So. Like I don't want to work on that. But great great two cookbooks, is there one uh, is there another one that you're that comes to mind? Ooh, yes. Um well, how long do you have? Because I yeah, feel totally. like I might just this be This could go all day.
0: <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'm here until you kick me out. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, but I think in terms of other books that I've really, really loved, um, I think of Black Food and then I also think of um Andy Baragani's forthcoming cookbook. Um and I think that both of those are so instrumental and both kind of challenging what it looks like to identify as a cook, you know? So with black food, it's much more looking at identity and a diasporic sense, you know, reminding people that like at the end of the day, so much of our cooking is tied to community. It's tied to, you know, the traditions and practices of so many other people too, you know? And I think sometimes we as American cooks can sometimes get a little removed or a little like individualistic and we forget that cooking was never meant to be this isolating thing it's always meant to be
1: communally driven yeah. or at least informed by people that we have relationships with and that's a hit on the head about black food tip brian terry's book uh, that came out last fall uh, i've written about the the way that sweet potatoes run throughout the book and the four or five mentions or, or, or chapters or sections about sweet potatoes and love that dr conyer's Recipes, gorgeous and and so thoughtful in the way that it's presented as a singly roasted potato yeah <laughs> i love yeah. that i love that book i it's could talk all so day good. about that book but um I, I like the the fact that you're bringing up um you know community because you are right and, and we don't talk about this enough that you know cooking is an isolating act to many but that's never mm. how it was intended to be absolutely like how do you then in this Mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, I don't know. We won't label (laughs) it. But how do you like to share community when you cook? Do you have dinner parties? Do you have friends over? How do you do that? Yeah. Um,
0: Great, great question. I think for me it's been a lot of just like identifying and creating opportunities to just cook and eat. With people, it's all just about like, okay, what are the times that I can just try something new, and maybe it'll just be for me. And I invite my sister over, or maybe I invite, <laughs> you know, some friends, or maybe I just drop it off
1: next yeah. door. Um So yeah, yeah. Is there something this summer that you want to tackle? Is there, is there is there a vegetable that you're going to land on when you're looking at roughage, or Ooh. or just do you have anything ba- banked <laughs> uh, a, res- a a vegetable recipe, or anything?
0: Yeah, I. I- <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta be honest. Um, I'm simultaneously torn between <laughs> Andy's uh, what he calls his kinky eggplant recipe, where basically <laughs> you're you're essentially just like roasting eggplant until the skin gets taut and leathery. And he made a joke that it always reminds him of like <laughs> kinky boots or or like drag shows and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one that's on my radar. But then I also want to really kind of get myself out of the mold of like trying to plan all of my cooking. I think that's one, one of my issues. I'm a notorious Capricorn. So because of yeah. that, I'm always like, okay, I'm going to do this at this time. Or-
1: I agree. You have to kind of split the difference if you're going to evolve as a home cook. And I and we're shouting on Andy Baragani's book, The Cook You Want to Be, which is out pretty soon. I think it might be out by the time this, this airs. But um, let's talk about the one recipe, uh, your your show, uh, which airs, uh, it's part of Splendid Table. So it airs after and before episodes of Splendid Table on National Public Radio, or I don't know if I got that right. If it's PR8 or PRI anyways okay t- let's talk about your uh, your show what what's this is a great show by the way i, I really enjoy i love it it's Short. it gets to the point it's great well booked well booked like what's the show all about thank you so much i really really appreciate that
0: um so yeah. the show the one recipe is all about the one recipe that you know professional chefs um industry experts and really really great home cooks all think everyone should know how to make or it's the recipe that they turn to again and again um, it's both a celebration of some of the more pragmatic and like real life cooking <laughs> that happens hmm. and then also the aspirational project cooking that happens too um, so it's been a it's been a joy to work on and it uh yeah so it all came from Sally Swift and Erica Romero um, the managing producer and producer for the show um, so they had just been talking about how to experiment with different lengths, because they've been working on the Splendid Table for forever. So they were like, okay, well, it'd be great to have a show that's a little bit shorter, a little bit more succinct, and then Sally woke up in the middle of the night one day, like literally 3 a.m., made the show's Instagram handle, and then we were off like a rocket from there.
1: I love that about <laughs> Sally. That's so great. She's awesome. I, I've hung out with Sally. She's she's amazing. Oh, my gosh, she's a Long-time an producer, legend in the industry, if you know public radio programming, oh, yeah. but... Wow, what a cool show and, and I, I like that it is succinct. I think sometimes we go a little long with the, in the podcast world and it's nice that there's a show that's under 10 minutes. Um, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream book project um, where you didn't have the burden of time meaning you wouldn't have a deadline, you wouldn't have the burden of, of of a budget you would have actually no budget mm-hmm. what would that book project be?
0: Oh, Okay, so this is a question that Every time you ask someone else on the show, or every time Anna asks someone on the show, I'm always just like, oh, that's such a good question. I'm so glad I don't have to answer right now. Oh, no. <laughs> and then I'm just like, oh, wait, now, now I actually have to answer you knew it's You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. <laughs> I did. I think I would want to do an anthology cookbook that kind of interrogates the question of, like, what does it mean to make home? Um, whether that's after or in the face of, you know, long geographic distances or whether that means, like, reestablishing family traditions after the loss of, like, a pivotal family member, or all of these kind of life transitions. Like, what does it mean to to really put down your roots again?
1: We'll talk about bringing community into book format. I love that idea, and I, I hope you can make that happen. I feel like you will. Thank you. Uh,
0: no promises <laughs> right now.
1: Uh, I would <laughs> love to one day, um, but for right now, I'm,
0: I'm just having a blast chatting. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jesse Sparks, thank you for joining
1: the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.